Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Mindful Narcissist Podcast. I'm your host, the Mindful Narcissist, and we're back with another guest episode. This one actually took ages to edit because I think while we were recording, I just like forgot we were recording. So there were loads of tangents and like really irrelevant chats in the middle, but that's what made it so much fun to record. And I think that comes across pretty well in the final edit. So here we go. I am absolutely delighted to be able to introduce you Bo. Hello, everyone. My name is Bo Williams. I am a spoken word artist and poet, uh, originally from Portland, Maine, but currently based in Dublin, Ireland. The other week, I had Katie on. Katie, the joyful ecologist, and Bo is Katie's fiance. And I realized as I was kind of doing Katie's intro, I just was talking about you as if everybody was going to. There was no explanation, <laughs> no context, just talking about Bo. And I realized I do that a lot. <laughs> because I'm just like, of course, everybody knows Bo. And because we run in like a similar enough circle, I think, in Galway, most of the time, everybody does know who you are. But every once in a while, you're like, sorry, what? Who's Bo? And I'm like, you don't know Bo. That is a shit. I'm so sorry that you don't know Bo. <laughs> but yeah, beginning bit is always how I know you. We met at the Roshin Dub. We met at a free gig that I stumbled into at the Roshin Dub. Yeah, yeah. Other Katie took me there. And then I met you and I just decided we were friends. Although I don't think we actually hung out until like I came to Dublin to get your book from you. Oh, that's right. Yeah, so we've always ran in similar circles. Uh, we, yeah. we had a similar path to Ireland uh, through the Ballyvaughan College, you know, the Byrne College of Art mm-hmm. in Ballyvaughan. And uh, you're literally the only other person I know uh, on a regular basis, you know, that I'm friends with on a regular basis that uh, has gone there uh, or has done the same kind of situation I have. Uh, and then you moved to Galway, uh, which is one of my favorite cities in the world. Uh, so, yeah, we're... We have similar paths and uh, and, and we're doing great. <laughs> we can relate. And that is kind of unique to like know somebody else with an experience of the burn because like that is a unique place. I've always sure. seen it as like this hidden gem, uh, this experience that I don't know if it was a fever dream or if it actually happened. Uh, I have no physical thing to hold that says that I went there and I did it except, you know, the the stories in my heart. <laughs> and to see someone else who has uh, been through a similar thing, I'm like, oh, yes, it did happen. I know it happened because Caitlin went there too. <laughs> yeah, no, I tell people, like, the two years, I was there for two years, which is insane. And I'm like, yeah, kind of a fevered dream time. But I tell people it's the limestone. I'm convinced the limestone has magical powers oh, that for sure. strip you of who you thought you were. You're And you're forced uh. to face yourself and you lose your mind, but you rebuild and hopefully you're better for it that is i envy you that you got two years out of it i had one month uh which was a phenomenal experience but uh if i if i had two years i might be a completely different person i know you had a few um a few poems in your first book that like referenced belly bond and those were fun for me to read because again it is like oh my god somebody else had the experience i wasn't crazy it really happened and you encapsulated it perfectly and i was like oh yes i have lived all these things (laughs) well thank you for saying that it's a the this book nail gun and a love letter i most of it i wrote at the burn college of art i i had had a couple poems that existed before 
before uh, before I put this book together, but really that whole month there, I just wrote, I wrote a hundred pages of poetry while I was there just because I had no access to my cell phone because uh, there was no internet uh, at the workshop space. I didn't know anybody uh, on the entire continent. And so there's something very special about putting yourself in a position where you're wildly vulnerable, where you don't know anybody you're in a completely new land. You can interact with people and, you know, you can relate to people because you've, because they're people and they're friendly, but there are all these slight, subtle little differences that really let you know that you're in a different place. And it, it doesn't, it, it can't do anything more than spark uh, your uh, imagination. You know, you know, there's no way to not be creative when you're surrounded by this uh, uncertainty, but also immense beauty. You know? And I feel like also like the element of being an outsider. Like I feel like you, especially in a village like that, you are hyper aware because mm -hmm. there's such a strong tribalism there. <laughs> Yep. And like, I mean, I felt that like it took a second for locals to like accept you. And once they did, they were like, oh, you're basically Irish. It's fine. <laughs> but like until that point, and you knew it if they didn't accept you. But even then when you're accept accepted, it's like you're hyper aware of what an outsider you are. And like for me, I think I started to have to like, you make a home within your art as well. Oh, for sure. Cause it's the, it's the, the thing that's closest to you. It's the, it's the most relatable thing. You know, you've, when, once you create something that is yours in a space that is not yours, that's, that's your home, you know, that's your, something you can hang on to and be, you know, and if, if other people start to like it uh, or give it credit or, you know, enjoy it in any sort of way, you're like, Ooh, okay. I, I have a place now. I'm the guy that does this. I'm the guy that does poetry. Remember that poem you liked? See, I'm not an outsider anymore. <laughs> yes, you build a place for yourself, which you mm. definitely have. You very much built a place for yourself here. Yeah, it's a, a Galway has been so well. All of Ireland has been incredibly welcoming for this, uh, for for me and uh, to me and uh, for this art. When I came here. Well, originally, the reason I came to Ireland, uh, I wanted to do a poetry tour um, because I'd done many poetry tours uh, all over the United States for about seven or eight years, um, coast to coast, top to bottom. Um, and I was like, you know, I want to try something different, something bigger. I've always wanted to go to Ireland. Let's go to Ireland. So I just sent out a hundred emails to everyone from, you know, coast to coast. And I got two responses. Uh, one was from uh, the International Bar uh, in Dublin. And they said they uh, circle the circle sessions open mic. And they said they'd love to have me. And then the Bergen College of Art emailed me and said, well, we, we can't really uh, pay to do a show. But if you want to apply for our artist in residence program, uh, we'd love to look at your application. So I did that. And I got in. And that was that's how I got here to stay. And then once I showed up on the weekends, I would go up to Galway and, uh, you know, party in the big city. And I discovered the, um, the Roisin Dove and uh, their open mic there. I performed a poem. People came up and started talking to me and said they really liked it and they wanted to hear more. So I came back the next week and made friends 
pretty much immediately. Uh, <laughs> what they say about the Irish being incredibly friendly, it's it's always true. <laughs> and uh, I've, I've never felt more home in a foreign place. That's, that's kind of where it all started for me. And when you started doing the open mics, was it, because I've only been to really one, but it was all music. Were you like the only poet? Yeah. Actually, when I first got there, they did comedy too. But since then, comedy actually got booted to the curb. But for some reason, she allowed me to keep doing poetry. Because um, I, I asked I asked her once, uh, Tracy, on the very first night, I was like, hey, is poetry okay? And she's like, that's not really our thing, but you can try it if you want. Yeah, sure. We'll let you do it. And I did it. And afterwards, she was like, yeah, come back anytime. And I was like, all right, cool. <laughs> so I know when you talk to visual artists, most of us can distill our practice down into like the artist statement because you're forced to write one in school or for applications and things. Is that a thing with like poetry spoken word? Do you have to have some sort of statement or are you just, see in my head, your branch of the arts is just like the freer one. Like I feel like it's more free in that way. Like you don't have to define yourself by an artist statement. But I thought I'd ask, like, is that a thing? That's a good question. In fact, it wasn't until I started applying for art bursary awards that I had even heard of an artistic statement and I really I had to ask a lot of people uh, what is my artistic statement I've, I've I don't create art in order to fulfill a mission statement so I'm not sure quite where to go with that but I, I guess it's hard to compare because I I don't have a lot of experience with those things but I feel like poetry, at least spoken word poetry in general, is such a broad topic, as you said. It could encapsulate basically anything. You know, I could have a poem about this and a poem about that, and they could be com two completely different things. But in general, oh, I don't know. Let's see. I'll, I'll look at my my bio here, actually. I think my, my fiancé actually wrote part of my bio, and it's the coolest part. So, uh, and I think this might encapsulate uh, some of the artistic statement. Said, that uh, my poetry style has been described as joyful, heart-wrenching, and captivating. His work focuses on issues of the heart, exploring the complexity of human relationships, inspiring hope in the face of darkness, and generally interrogating the way that we occupy space in the world. So of all the poems that I've ever written, that's probably the most beautiful line, uh, and I didn't even write it. <laughs> Leave it to a PhD student to be able to distill it down to that. That is like, I feel like that's that's what I would call an artist statement. Yeah. It doesn't seem oh. to be reductive either. A lot of the times I feel like they can be kind of reductive when you have to reduce your practice, your entire practice to one. Well, when you're, boi when you're boiling art down to, to a single sentence or, or a couple sentences, it's hard to not be super abstract with it. You know, it's, uh, it's hard to get, I don't know, a finite definition as opposed to being like, I, uh, I float along the wind wherever it takes me, you know, <laughs> and it's like cool, but also what makes you, you know, specifically you, you know? But wouldn't it be so nice to be able to just say that? I just, oh, that I nice. am an artist and I make art. Um, that's <laughs> my statement. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah, because that's another thing that's really hard to do is to, I think that's why we have such a hard time coming up with artistic statements because we don't, we don't, like I said, we don't write or we don't create art in order to fulfill some sort of, I don't know, to fill a role or to fulfill a statement. We do it because 
it's just something that happens through us. You know, it's just something we do because we like it and we're good at it. So I don't know, it's, it's easier when someone else can look at what you do and be like, oh no, this is why you do it because it's, you know, it, it hits me that way. So I, you know, this, this is what everybody seems to get out of what you do. And it's like, oh, cool. Didn't even think about that, but I'm, I'm glad you got that out of it. Good for you. <laughs> Whenever I read through your work, I think I've told you this before, it makes me want to draw. And I hate drawing like actual representational things. That's my only metric for like, quote unquote, good poetry. If I read it and it makes me want to draw something, I'm like, ah. Well, that is an incredibly nice thing to say. Uh, I feel like I keep telling you that, but you keep saying really nice things. Um, uh, as a, I, I say that when I when I teach writing workshops at high schools and secondary schools and stuff. Um, normally, a lot of my workshops, I I perform some work and then we talk a little bit about about poetry and then we do a writing assignment afterwards. Um, that's the general kind of structure of the day. But one of the things I tell kids, I'm like, if I'm reading a poem on stage for you right now and it makes you want to write write like grab your notebook grab your pen and just go for it i will not take offense it will be probably the greatest compliment that anyone can give me that i inspired them <laughs> and it happens every once in a while and uh yeah i was actually looking back through our text messages and i saw you uh i i w had remembered uh that you said that and uh, it's just such a sweet thing because to, especially to inspire a different kind of art it's one thing uh, i'm not saying it's technically better or worse or whatever but it, I guess it would be easier if you are inspired by writing to write, uh, but if you are inspired by writing and it makes you want to draw or dance or sing or something, that's, I feel like that's something special in a totally different way. And that's, so it's uh, just, I don't know, a really nice compliment. It's cool because it's like, it's like you're then getting to see it, you know, translated into a different language. Ooh. But I thought as well, because we had you at the gallery and you wrote the poem in response to the show that was on. And I thought that was so, so cool as well. And again, it's just like taking that and putting it into a different language. Yeah, and that's actually in the new book. That was tons of fun. Um, I'd never actually done that before. Um, the project you had suggested was to walk around the gallery and kind of take it all in and look at all the pieces in the exhibit and take it home and write whatever had inspired me in that room. And I feel like I feel like I did it right. Like it felt really good when I was writing it. And as I was reading it, I was like, I could picture what each piece was. I was like, all right, I, I think I did it. <laughs> yeah, no, as I was reading it, I didn't immediately recognize that I knew it because it's been long enough that like it had become a bit fuzzy. But as I was reading it, I started picturing things that were very close to the show. And then I was like, why do I know this? <laughs> so <laughs> it took me a second to like re-remember that like, wait, I do already know that poem and I have already seen those pieces. But like it got me there before I remembered it consciously. Yeah. Man, it's just great. There's so many ways to like read art in so many ways to interpret it. And it all depends on like oh, yeah. what you bring to the table as well. Absolutely. Um, I, uh, on, a, on a similar topic, uh, one of my favorite writing prompts is um, to write, uh, describe a scene to someone who cannot see or describe a sound to someone who cannot hear. Um, and those are so much fun because you, you do have to kind of 
step out of you you do have to kind of reinterpret something in a completely different way uh using the tools and the skills that you do have uh so if you can't see what else do you have you can hear things you can feel things you can taste things you can smell things okay how how can i describe a sunset to someone who can't see it and then just kind of deconstruct all the elements and and reimagine them uh using different i don't know skills so that, that must be a practice because like i'm so i'm such a heavily visual person so mm-hmm. if you told me to describe a sunset without eyes i have no idea what i would say well that's the that's the super fun thing about it is uh you know i, I always talk about one of the great things about poetry is that there's no rules in poetry at all um you know there's structure and there's form poems and there's you know if a teacher asks you to do an assignment you know in order to get this out of it then yes there's rules but in general there's no rules to poetry did you do your undergrad in like writing creative writing or something because i know you did your master's in cork no i didn't actually do an undergrad i the reason i was able to get my master's was or to get into the master's program was solely on my uh life experience wow that's cool okay which i didn't even know was a thing yeah i didn't either (laughs) um well i assume then i was going ask like would you be like as part of like the training for poetry or creative writing would you have to learn things like how to write in traditional forms like the only thing I can think of is like iambic pentameter because I know we did a lot of assignments like that in high school English but I assume they don't make you do that in a master's program we we study it and we learn what the form is and you know how maybe some famous poems of that form. In general, yeah, we just kind of study theory of poets and different ways to write and different ways to get inspired and all that kind of thing. But so there's no rules to poetry, but the the reason that structured form poetry exists is to think outside of a way that you would normally think. Uh, and and write in a way that you wouldn't normally write, or at least that's my interpretation of why form poetry exists. Like you had said, you're an incredibly visual learner. Then to make yourself not write in that way, write in a completely different way, exercises a different part of your artistic brain and just kind of makes you a little more well-rounded and really jump out of your comfort zone. So yeah, every once in a while, I'll write a sonnet or I'll write a a pantoum or a haiku uh, or something like that, not because I, I believe that it is a superior art form or anything like that, but just because it's putting blockades in the way in order to make me do mental hurdles to get over them, to find a new way to write and, you know, be inspired in a different way. I wish somebody had described the basics kind of of art to me like that at some point, because, you know, as you're getting your art degree, you always have to take the foundational classes of like, you know, observational drawing, figure drawing, basic painting and stuff. And I hated them. I was Mm -hmm. like, these are irrelevant to me. This isn't how I make art. I make art the way that I want to make art. And so I did the bare minimum to make it through the classes. But that is a much better way. Like, I would have been totally into it if somebody had told me that, (laughs) that that was the reason why I was doing it. Not because I think it was described to me as like, you have to know the basics and you have to have those perfected before you can go off the rails. Oh, absolutely. And I teach writing workshops all the time. uh, And I I specifically try to make it so it's not quite beginner and it's not quite advanced and it's not quite in the middle. It's more about understanding writing 
from a, a core value kind of way, anyone can get something out of it. If you've been writing for 20 years and you got 10 books published, or if you've never picked up a pen before, you're inevitably going to be removed from why you started writing. Or if you've never written before, you're not going to quite know why you're writing to begin with. And uh, so that was that was the title of one of my uh, writing workshops that I used for years and still do is called Why I Write. It kind of sets the workshop apart and allows anyone to get something out of it, no matter where you're from. How does having an audience, like when you're performing a poem, like how do you feel like that changes the poem? Do you feel like it changes the poem? Oh, 100%. Um, because, well, okay, so there's two different ways uh, to think about it. I I don't write for anyone but me. And I don't, a lot of people write for, you know, to get a score at a slam or to impress someone or to, to get that limelight, to get the, the cheers and the woos and all that. But I write for for me and the fact that other people like it is just an anomaly and it's just really cool but there once you perform a poem it no or or release a poem in any sort of way whether you you know whether you just share the page with a friend or if you get a page published or if you're performing a poem on stage as soon as it leaves you it no longer belongs to you it belongs to the person that needs to hear it or that has heard it and it is now their poem and they interpret it the way they want to interpret it and it's now for them there's this this give and take that a performer gets when they're on stage where if i some of the best shows i've ever had are people who have cried in the audience or you know the fact that i can read a poem and look out and at any point i can look at anyone in the audience and feel their eyes just on me like there's nothing else that exists in the world except me reading this poem right now it's it really intensifies it you know if you want to talk about energies the fact that you know if you're if you're talking to someone and you have their undivided attention you can feel that you have their undivided attention and to have a room full of people if you have 75 people looking at you 200 people looking at you and each one of them has given you everything that they have then there's no way to not feel that you know it's no there's no way it's not going to come out in the poetry so yeah there's there's a total connection between audience and how a poem uh, is performed or received. Did you always have like a performative streak? Oh yeah. Uh, when I was little, I wanted to, I wanted to, okay. My, my dream jobs were this. When I was about five, I wanted to be a bag boy um, at the grocery store because that was the coolest job I could think of. And then a little bit later, uh, I watched an episode of The Simpsons uh, where Bart went to military school and he just played on the jungle gym for a long time. And I was like, cool, I wanna go to military school. That's what I wanna be. Uh, my dad said, no, you don't. And I was like, okay. No, it actually <laughs> looks like. <laughs> he brought me to a jungle gym and I played on that and I was totally content. Fulfilled. Um, but then by the time I was about seven or eight is when uh, I decided I want to be an actor. And uh, I loved Hollywood. I loved movies. I loved all that. So uh, I, and I went and I, I tried to be out and uh, tried out for plays and stuff like that in school. And I got into a couple of them uh, in middle school. Uh, by the time I got to high school, I, I was, uh, I didn't quite make it on to, to any of the stages, but I still loved that limelight. And, uh, you know, I, but I was a, a track star, you know, uh, played soccer, played football, played a little bit of golf. I, I hate golf now, but at the time, you know, it was cool. And so I always loved, I don't know, you, you get a lot out of receiving energy and love from people to be the center of attention kind of 
uh, is is nice for that. Um, and so I guess it doesn't really matter, uh, or it didn't really matter how how that came about. But nowadays, I've found my niche. I found what I'm best at, and uh, and that I want to keep getting better at. And I find, and it just so happens to be the thing that other people like as well. <laughs> so it works out nicely. I think it's so interesting how like artistic types, I feel like tend to be like on either end of that spectrum. Like either we love the attention, we love the limelight, we totally are like performer type people, or it's just like, no, just look at my work. I don't want to ever be seen. <laughs> like let me <laughs> stay in the studio, stay in my corner and just write and make and never attach my actual face to my work. Yep. I could see that i uh i am not that i could not i could not do that um if if someone sees my work i want to be like that was me i did that bo williams did that (laughs) there's a reason i'm on the mindful narcissist podcast so do you have like a specific process that you go through like a creative process or creative rituals Hmm. well i i i I know that in terms of writing i have to be inspired um there's i'm not the kind of person that sits down and writes every single day. I probably should. I'd probably be a lot better off if I was. I really just kind of go with what my, my my guts are telling me, you know? If if something inside of me is, is really pushing me to write, then I'll block everything else out and I'll write. A lot of times I'll also think about like, okay, uh, maybe I'm very frustrated for some reason and everything, you know, I have a very short fuse and everything has been bugging me. And I'm like, okay, why am I so frustrated? Why am I so annoyed with everything? Oh, when was the last time I wrote a poem? Uh, maybe I should try doing that. Really, it's it's the, the writing process is taking that rat's nest in your brain uh, and unraveling it. Uh, is really the best way I can describe it. And I kind of see it as like, you know, you take the tip of the rat's nest and, you know, it goes through your brain, down your arm, into your pen and onto the page. And the more you write, the more it just spills out and turns into something legible, something that you can look at and that you can interpret. Yeah, it just it just pulls that clear and makes everything a lot easier to understand. And then when you're done, you can look down. You know, have you ever been in like a, a feverish writing or drawing a session and then you kind of like black out for a second and then you look down and you got the page and you're like whoa I had no idea I felt like that I had no idea that you know this is what I was thinking or these are where my emotions were your brain feels a lot lighter your heart feels a lot lighter and you can actually look at the page and there's words to that feeling you had there's words to the reason you were acting that way if you can take that and lasso those thoughts in your brain and put it onto the page you now have control over that thing that had control of you that's really the the main reason i write there really helps me understand my heart and understand my brain really that's a blacking out process you know that is a i when i get that urge to write i block everything else out i can't have music i can't have sounds i i need to be in a place where no one else is i need to be in a place where i can be kind of inspired a lot of people need music to write I can't write with music. It's, I feel like there's too much, uh, too many distractions. I feel like I'll be influenced by the music when all I really want to do is just figure out what is going on in my brain, you know? So that's, that's kind of my, my process.
this. I did a writing retreat the other day. Uh, the other day, it was January. The other day. And, you know, <laughs> one of, one of the, you know, the other day. And uh, what I do, this is probably the second or third one I've done. I grab a giant stack of poetry books and a couple memoirs, a couple novels, and I bring them with me and I block everything else out. It's like eating food, you know, your, your body takes the nutrients it needs and then gets rid of the rest. Then the next day or that, you know, way late that night or something, once I've kind of digested the book a bit, I'll get to writing and my work will sound a lot like that poet, but it will be me mixed with that poet. And then the next day I'll read another book and do the same thing. And it'll be a completely different style of poet. And my writing style will inevitably be much different that night or the next night as well. If you do that enough, eventually, you know, your your poems that you're writing aren't gonna sound as much like the poet you just read as it is the poet you just read, plus the poet from the day before, plus the poet from the day before. And, you know, it's like eating a varied diet. You know, if you eat only potatoes, then you're going to be made of potatoes, you know, <laughs> but if you eat a varied diet, then you're going to be you. And I think that's really one of the best ways to get inspired. Um, and yeah, that's so that's another kind of writing process that I do. I like the idea of like, you know, the more you take in, the more you become you. It's like, you know, if you throw glue on a wall and then I throw glitter at it, the glitter is not going to stick to anything that's not glue. So the, you know, it's still, you're going to take whatever works with you. You know, you're going to take whatever meshes with you and whatever doesn't mesh with you is going to go away and you're going to forget it or whatever. And that's fine. That's why I keep saying varied diet. It's so good to have a varied diet, not just in terms of what you read, but on what you experience. Like if you if you do the same walks, if you go to the same places, if you talk to the same people, you're going to get the same result. If you, you know, take a different route, if you go put your feet in the in the ocean uh, and you never do do that, you know, whatever, you know, throw water in the air, who cares, who's looking, whatever, you know, the, if you experience different things, you're going to get different results, you're going to absorb things that you wouldn't normally absorb. Um, and that's the same with art, you know, my, uh, go to the, go to plays, watch movies, watch shows, listen to music. When Michael Jackson died, Andrew Gibson, one of my favorite poets of all time, wrote a tweet that said, the moonwalk was my favorite poem. That always stuck with me because that just opened up a whole new door for me. I, I always say my favorite poem of all time is, um, besides Say Yes by Andrea Gibson and Stories by Will Gibson, is the retirement match uh, between Ric Flair and Shawn Michaels uh, at WrestleMania whatever in New Jersey. I forgot where it was. That is one of the most beautiful poems I've ever seen. It was beautifully choreographed. The emotion was so powerful. Uh, the stakes were incredibly high. It was beautiful visually, uh, you know, to the ear, everything. It's it's all about what you can experience from all over the world. I think for myself, I call that mindful chaos of like the taking Ooh. in of everything. It's vital for like my artistic process, I know. And if things start to get too stagnant, I have to do weird stuff to just shake it up a little bit. Like during the most recent lockdown, I started learning Latin in my bathtub because <laughs> that's the best place to learn latin 
Absolutely. But like Latin for some reason was very much like that informed my practice. Whereas like wrestling, it's not something you think would inform an artistic practice necessarily. But everything mm -hmm. we take in, if it strikes a chord. One thing, I, you know, when I start to get stagnant, when I start to get stuck, one of the things I do is uh, listen to my intuition. It's so nuanced. Uh, you know, if you're walking across the room and a part of you is like look to your right I'll, I'll go okay and i'll look to my right and it may not there there may not be something magnificent over there but it's the first step in listening to what your body is trying to tell you and it's all these little things that i think really help me get back on track when i'm all over the place which inevitably helps me you know get get into the right headspace and the writing headspace as well the more you can say yes to things, I think the more opportunities arise. I think that's what we miss so often in terms of process. Because like you said earlier, the idea of like, I wish I was somebody who wrote every day or something, the way that people have like that kind of intense process. I think that's what we're told a lot of the time that like to be successful, you have to be disciplined. You have to get up at this time. And first thing you do, write 20 pages every day. But so often that's linked to just like productivity and like imposing yeah. the capitalist model on your arts practice. Whereas if you were more in tune with yourself and you said yes to your intuition more often, you'd probably end up doing that anyway. But it would be for like, not the right motivation, but like the right motivation. It's so funny that you say that because when you first started saying it, I was like, yeah, you know, it, it really is a good way to do it though, you know, to write 20 pages a day, no matter what, even if it's crap, which I still believe is the right thing to do. And I, But I was going to relate it back to if you've ever read On Writing by Stephen King. Uh, one of the things he says is, you know, uh, people ask, me, you know, how often do you write? And I say, every day except my birthday and Christmas for five hours a day. But uh, that's that's a lie. That's that's not true. I write five hours a day every single day, including my birthday and Christmas. I was like, Jesus, because he's been writing since, you know, the 60s or 70s or whatever. And uh, I was like, wow, if you know, that is a very structured process. And it, obviously, it's done wonders for him. But who has put out more books than him? Nobody, <laughs> you know, and bestsellers and stuff. So it is the capitalist market that you were talking about. You know, that's where that's where he thrives is the capitalist market. You know, obviously, he would still do this, whether he got books published or not. He's not hurting for money or inspiration or anything. But uh, yeah, they're just different ways, depending on what your goal is with uh, with writing. You know, if you want to make a billion dollars then there's a way to do that if you want to be a, a nobody on the street corner but you just write your poems there's a way to do that as well will you read us a poem before we finish i can write a poem i know can i request it as well I oh please do it. yeah i was actually gonna just <laughs> try and dig through and pick one out but yeah what you got i already know it's in it's in your newer one what's the title of it again plug your book <laughs> So my newest book by Waterside Productions is Things I Blindly Took as Gospel. And it took me about five years to write. And uh, it's mainly, a lot of it is written uh, during the pandemic and during my master's program as well. So the poem I want you to read is, I was, I was reading through it and I was like, oh look, it's my poem. And so self-indulgently, I want you to read <laughs> my poem, <laughs> Locks and Latches. Should I give any sort of preface or should I just read it? Sure, give us a preface. Okay. <laughs> Locks and Latches was written for you because I had just come from your hometown. I had, uh, you and I had uh, kind of met in Galway 
that was our home during the time we knew each other, first started to know each other. And then I went on tour and on my poetry tour of the United States, I went to California and I did a show in Visalia. It was an amazing time, but uh, I just had that idea of home being there and also home being there and kind of seeing how, how they connect and what the similarities and differences are. So this poem is called Locks and Latches. Sometimes it's a bed in a shoebox with a price tag made of gold. Sometimes it's the woven tea cozy walls of a poem. Sometimes it's a kitchen billowing with the scent of warm food and your mother's voice in song. It's a warehouse in Galway where artists live, leave their hearts in shavings on the concrete walls and the concrete floors and we sip good coffee on the couch. It's a small town in California where the sunset can be an open wound, but the sky has been through heavier smoke than that and is happy to sit and laugh with you about it. We all find home where we do and know in our guts where it isn't. Sometimes we aren't sure if the doorknob will chill or warm our hand, but we sure as hell know the weight of it, know the creak of the clocks and the wall inside, but we pray to locks and latches that it still knows and wants to warm our bones. We know the sound the door makes when it opens, know the crash a door makes when it shuts. That was such a wonderful note to end on. I'm very glad that I thought to have him read before the end of the episode. Thank you so much for coming along for another chat. I'll have Bo and all of his relevant links tagged in the episode description. Be sure to follow him at Bo Williams Poet on Instagram to keep up with his work and definitely go buy his poetry collections. Follow me at Caitlin W for daily mindful narcissist content or at The Mindful Narcissist if you want an irregular weekly reminder that a new episode has indeed gone up. As always, like, share, review, all that good stuff. And my DMs are always open. Catch you next week. Mwah!